the joy of seeing a child open the boxes for the first time is just, it's incredible. We are so excited. Many of the children receive the shoe boxes for the first time in their life. We pray that these boxes that we use bring a lot of happiness and joy, but more importantly, the gospel to each heart, all these little children around the world. No greater need and no greater time than right now for us to go out and serve boldly. Oh my goodness! This is what these shoe boxes are all about, to go out and to bring a hope of Jesus Christ around the world. I'm just so amazed at what God does each and every year. This is an opportunity to impact the lives of millions of children, just like you've seen. But we need more boxes for next year. Every box is an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you, and God bless each and every one. Well, good morning, Grace. Great day to be here. Well, we're starting the Operation Christmas Child. This is a thing we've been doing for well over 20 years. I, I'll bet we've sent 100,000 boxes or more around the world. Uh, what a Christmas gift. So if you guys could make it a point to go out into the courtyard, get a couple of boxes, uh, fill those up full of the list of goodies that you might want someone to enjoy, and, and uh, they're going to bring those gifts with the gospel as well all over the world. It's kind of fun time. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll be there in a minute, but I wanted to give you an update. I've been, I promised you I'd give you an update on our Summer of Giving Fall of, of Serving campaign. We did that to just acknowledge that maybe, you know, during our quarantine and uh, pandemic time, we might have turned in on ourselves and just kind of protecting ourselves and we got to get back in shape and start giving out and serving others. And it's just a good thing to do and it's fun to do it as a team. And so we had this, the plan was uh, er, everything given to the church over our budgeted expenses that we'd planned before this campaign even started would be given out to ministries around the city and around the world. So we've already given out $232,000. That ain't bad. Give yourselves a hand. And then I, I said last week that we had an additional $305,000 to give away, which made that we were going to give over $500,000 from just the summer of giving. Yeah. But there's been an update. <laughs> Uh, hey, have you, ever, have you ever put on an old pair of pants or something and you reach in your pocket and it's like, there's a $20 bill. Look at this, this is awesome. It, that kind of happened, except the $20 bill was a $200,000 bill. So we're actually giving away over $700,000 for our campaign for the summer. Yeah, baby. And uh, I'll tell you more next week on where it's going. This week, we wanted to focus on some ministries that are local. These are also places that are really great to serve in if you're looking for a place to volunteer. We're giving $5,000 to the English language ambassadors. This is a ministry that got started just a few years ago, but boy, for such a time as this, they're teaching Afghanis uh, English as a second language. And so now business is good, right? So this is a beautiful ministry that uh, we have a relationship with the, the leaders there that goes back almost 30 years. Love this group, uh, English language ambassadors. We're giving $15,000 to God of Hope Ministries. This is a ministry to uh, prisoners that are locally being held. And it's a ministry for the men and the women. Many of our leaders uh, here at Grace Covenant Church are part of the leadership team at, at that uh, vital place. And so if you want to be involved in that, helping uh, people that are incarcerated, incarcerated become like Christ in all of life, that's what they're doing, doing a, not a great job too. 
And then finally, Austin Disaster Relief Network, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that ministry. It's like our own Red Cross here in Austin, and they're actually looking at going national because it's so effective. Well, they're moving their office, and their, their main location is going to move up to Mopac and, and Wells Branch Parkway or so, and they need money for those uh, expensive moves and remodel. And so we're going to give them $100,000. Yeah. Give yourselves a hand. Ray Anderson plays Santa Claus around here. He called them just last week, uh, they, and they picked up because we have a great relationship with ADRN, and they said, Ray, what's up? I'm right in the middle of a board meeting. He said, well, I'm glad you are. I'm calling to tell you we're going to give $100,000 towards your move. And that was the topic of discussion. So they were very happy for that. Well, keep up the great work. Uh, next week, I'm going to let you know about some things that have been uh, in the in the we've been cooking for almost over a year now that we're finally going to be able to reveal. So next week, I'll tell you more about our summer of giving and where we're going to send these resources. Let me pray. And we just thank God for what he's done in our church so far. Lord, we do lift up uh, the way you've blessed us to bless others, the way you've given to us so we can give to others. And just what, what a joy it is to see ministries around the world and around this town where we can influence people for the cause of Christ and sometimes it's, it's in areas where we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it, but there are people that do. And so we want, we want them to be less concerned about finances and more concerned about how to please you and use their gifts. So, Lord, we lift up these ministries to you. And for every dollar we give, Lord, I'd ask that you'd return two to five dollars on, on just spiritual return. We'd ask that you'd bless these men and women that do these ministries, keep them whole and healthy. Do not let them grow tired of doing good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right, let's look at our passage today. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's verses 7 through 11. Uh, there was a TV series that, uh, it's, it's over now, it's on National Geographic, but it was a big hit for four seasons. It was called Doomsday Preppers. Anybody seen that? It uh, apparently... Millions of people watched it, and it kind of got a little thing going about what, you know, are you ready? That's their big byline. You know, are you ready? Are you, are, are you prepared? Doomsday preppers, are you prepared for some kind of natural disaster or man-made disaster? Are you going to make it? Do you have a bunker? No? <laughs> and ten, I mean, since that, tens of thousands, millions of dollars have been spent by individuals making sure that they were prepared. They were prepped and ready for that next big thing. And uh, it, it started a movement. Are you prepared? Because you never know when the end of the world is. I mean, the end of the world is near. I mean, what if, if we were watching F1 last week, right, uh, the Formula One racing, and, and you saw, like me, down on the infield, like in one of those sandwich, you know, car, those sandwich things that you wear, and it, and it just says, the end is near. And I've got a giant sign that says, repent. If you saw me walking around down there, and maybe somebody in your house says, hey, Dad, isn't that Pastor Matt? Aren't you friends with him? What would you say? No, I don't know. I never, I'm, that guy's, I don't know who that is. That guy's crazy. And so, uh, yeah, let's, let's watch something else. Because, right, I mean, just saying the end is near pretty much qualifies you for maybe, maybe you're not entirely well. I'm saying, and what I'm trying to today, here's the thing. That's how Peter starts the passage today. He says, the end of all things is near. 
And he's not saying this to just get attention and maybe draw people to do things because for no other reason than I'll, have, I'll, I'll just say that to get you motivated. If you, look at the, if you look at the New Testament, there's only four books that do not mention the eminent end of all of history. The New Testament begins in the book of Matthew. We're three chapters in, and John the Baptist is saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, ends with Jesus saying, yes, and I'm coming soon. And John says, yeah, amen, come Lord Jesus. So you're going to see in the Newer Testament over and over and over again that it says that the end is near. Here at Grace, we believe in what's called the eminent return of Jesus Christ. And what eminent means is any time, without warning, could be right now. These kind of theologically, we're in an era or a dispensation called last days. And that's how the whole New Testament is written. It is in the last days and the, I guess, job description for people in this era is to anxiously await the eminent return of Jesus Christ. So who says, be prepared? Well, Paul says it, and John says it, and James says it, and Peter says it, and they're not crazy. Paul says, time is running out, the Lord is near. That's in Romans. James says, strengthen your hearts because the coming of the Lord is near. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Be prepared. And so today, it's like, Grace, actually the whole church, the church. Here's five ways to respond to the, to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Here are five disciplines or principles for you to be prepared. Are you prepared? Do these five things. It'll make the church healthy and whole. It'll help you live a life without regret in the next life. So here they are. They're, these are the things that Peter learned from watching Jesus in the context of his persecution, in the context of the disciples being scattered, and in Peter's life, the Christians are being scattered all over Rome, and they're being persecuted by Nero. And he's saying, this is how you prep yourself. You sharpen up your thinking. You, you, you pray intelligent prayers. You love unceasingly. You look for ways of expressing even costly hospitality. You're using your spiritual gifts that God has given you, and all of this is for the glory of God the Father. All of that. That's what it means to be prepped. That's how to live in a way where you're waiting upon the Lord. Look what it says in 7 through 11. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll, and then we'll um, look at it individually. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the sake of of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks as an oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God has supplied in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. 
Peter says this not to shock or even scare anyone. Actually, these are, this is not a threat. These are very encouraging words. He's saying, look, in the context of our lives right now, they're living in a form of poverty. They're being persecuted. They're being lied about and hunted, scattered all around you going, hey, it's just temporary. It's not going to last long. Some of you have said these very things to maybe someone that you love in the last days or weeks of their life and they're struggling and you're saying, hey, it won't be much longer. You'll be home soon. Right. So that's what he's saying here. It's like, don't worry. And and the point of this and, and Paul and James and the other authors that write about the end of times, the, 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 the obvious application is that we're supposed to be living for the next life. And this life is not very long in comparison. Having an eternal, it's called an eternal perspective, is supposed to alter your lifestyle. You're supposed to be making decisions in the here and now, the ever so temporal here and now, so that you don't regret forever those decisions. Living for eternity means living like today can echo into eternity. That's why we do the giving that we do. That's why we do the the serving that we do. That's why we do everything we do. So now he's going to say, these are the five principles of being prepared for the return of Christ. These are the five. First seven has three of them. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the sake of your prayers. The first one he says is the first attribute is just to remain calm. Just remain calm. He says uh, of sound judgment. Uh, Some translations will say be cool headed. It means be a balanced mind. Some will say self-control. Have have self-control over your thoughts and over your actions, okay? Don't be afraid, don't panic, don't let emotions be driving your decisions. That's the first one. And the second one is similar to that, but different. He says, he says stay focused, sound judgment, and then he says, of sober spirit. Now, while one type of thinking is balanced, the other one is more, it's more like looking over the horizon and being alert. That's what the word means, alert. Spiritually discerning. Taking into account that we are not alone here. We, we, we live in a world that's spiritual and physical. Have a, have a sharp mind. Uh, one writer says this. Having sound judgment and a sober spirit means that when natural disasters hit, we don't panic. And when an official gets elected that we don't like or some nightly news is packed with bad news, we don't worry. Why don't we worry? Because we know that there is a sovereign creator who loves us and is an all-knowing God and is still running the universe. And so we're not going to have emotions that other people have because we have thoughts that are focused and sober. It's it's when we see, it's, it's an acknowledgement in our minds that there are secular and spiritual forces at work in our lives right now. And they're, they are making up panics or they are taking advantage of some kind of tragedy for no other reason than to divide things that are sacred, families and churches. They, politicians, media, social media could not care less about what is true. 
They are in it to stay in power or gain power and stay wealthy or gain wealth. And a person that has, that's sober minded and, and has a sober spirit backs up and says, wait a minute, there's more here than meets the eye. There's, I need to see what God's doing. And what happens is when you think about in the afterlife, if you could do this as kind of an application when you go home, just close your eyes and, and picture yourself after the grave, right? In the very presence of God. And then start thinking about making an inventory of the things you're obsessed about, worried about, angry for in this life. And when you're in that throne room and you look back at this life, please, please don't be saying things like you were compulsive about how much money you had in savings or where you ranked on the ladder of success or, or you were angry at churches are opening too soon or too late or they're not doing it right, not according to me. And you're like, wait, what? That's what I spend my energy on? Because when, you're, when you get there to heaven, looking back at the life you had, you could say, I should have seized that moment of ministry. There was so much ministry available because other people, they, did, they don't have the foundations in the promises of God and, the, and they don't know about the nature of God. I kept my head through that. I was able to stay sober spirited and I could reach out to other people. It wasn't about me. That's how this is applied. The end is near, he says, be prepared. His third skill here is to pray intelligently. Keep praying intelligently. Look, look how uh, our thoughts are actually setting up our prayers. He says, therefore, be, be of sound judgment and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. <laughs> the sound judgment and, and sober-minded is, is so that your prayers are intelligent. <laughs> I mean, just like picture this. You're, you know, a little girl runs up to her mom and says, mommy, mommy, I was watching the news and it was raining everywhere all the time. Can we pray that God won't flood the earth again? We gotta pray that. And mommy says, no, we're not going to pray that. And you know why we don't have to pray that? Because God made a promise about that. And then somebody comes up and says, Daddy, Daddy, like, look at all of these people getting away with whatever they want. They're smug and arrogant. And there's no consequence. There's no justice. And then I say, I mean, that could have been a prayer. I prayed, like, earlier today. Uh, let's, let's pray for justice. And it's like, why? I mean, God, there's a promise in the Bible that God's going to take. No one's getting away with anything. No one knows what goes on behind closed doors. That old country western song? Yeah, I think God does. Everybody will be answering for that. It's a promise of God. And so, so an application is to be wise in your prayers is study the promises of God. So you're not like trying to pray something he's already promised. Spend time with men and women that are older than you in the faith that they know the promises of God and they know the nature of God. So you can spend less time anxiously trying to, you know, I don't know, ask God for something that he's already promised. And if your current life and circumstances are confusing, pray about it. If you feel like the world is coming and unglued, sure, you pray about that. So many times in the Bible, multiple times in the Bible where it says, watch strategically watch with discernment 
and then pray. Watch and pray. I feel like this little section of advice is a bit of a flashback from Peter concerning his biggest regret in his life. And I think that if, if, if we asked around, I think most of us would say the biggest regret of Peter's life was when, his, when he denied Jesus Christ three times. But I don't think that's where Peter's big regret was. It precedes that. He had an individual invitation by the king. Jesus Christ says, Peter, you need to come with me into the Garden of Gethsemane. We need to pray. You come and pray with me. And the problem with Peter was he did not have sound judgment. He was not sober in spirit. He was drunk on ego. He was trusting in his own abilities and his own bravado. And Jesus <laughs> says to him, Peter, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat. You need to come and pray. And Peter's like, what could happen to me? What could happen to you? A 65-pound girl wearing a pink dress is going to ask you a question, and it will, she's going to crack you like a peanut. You're going to be in a corner crying, hoping you'd never been born. And he missed that. He didn't pray. Praying prepares you for battle. That's what Peter learned. Praying prepares you for battle. And he missed that. You can pray in the middle of a temptation. Good, I mean, I, sure, you bet. <laughs> but the prep work goes ahead of that. Otherwise, you're going to show up, you know, with a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> you came unarmed. And so Peter's saying here, he says, look, look, take this one from me, okay? Trust me, you don't want to live with the regret I've had to live with. You remain calm. You got a sober mind. And then constantly pray intelligently. And you could have a life without regrets. You know, when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, that was months ago. But if you remember, you know, Peter said something kind of like what we say. We say every believer is a minister here. Peter said every believer is a priest. So we're all priests. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a priest. And one of the job descriptions of a priest is to pray. You talk to God about our fellow man. So Peter's saying here, look, I told you before you're a priest. I'm telling you now, pray like a priest. Pray like you're God ordained to do this. And here's what I think we need to do. We combine these things. Grace, we need to do this. We need to be the lighthouse in the middle of this crazy storm. We need to be that, that beacon that is set on a foundation of solid stone and not be caught up in the waves. The crazy dramas that are being made up to keep us afraid or angry or, or the ones that are real, but are, they're still getting milked for that. We have to, like Peter's saying, stay on the mission of the church, the supremacy of the gospel, the glory of God the Father. Stay calm, stay sober, keep praying. Don't get lost in all of these distractions. Fourth survival tip for being prepared. He says, continue loving deeply. Continue loving deeply. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sin, earnestly, you heard me emphasize that word there, it, it, could, it, it means fervently, it means deeply, 
Graphically, it's used outside the Bible in Greek as a horse in full gallop, right? He's just, all the muscles are stretching even better. I love this picture because it's a, it's a sprinter coming into the, the finish line, hitting the tape, right? It's like, God, earnestly, love earnestly. And so I find myself loving some people like that, like, this is love. This earnest love. Anybody identify with that? No? Anyway, not all love is smiling. Uh, So, but look at the power of love that he brings up. Why would you love earnestly? Because he says love has power. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's just like what what he's saying here is that love is, is bigger than injury. And the more you love earnestly, the more a person is, co- is their injuries against you are covered. It's the nature of good relationships. He, he, by the way, just, just pause. He's not condoning bad behavior. He's not condoning perpetual bad behavior. And, and, and love is not trust. <laughs> don't, don't equivocate those words because if you lose trust, you have to earn the trust back, right? That's just, that's how that works but you can love someone and not trust them. I just want to make sure we, people get those two words. Mm, they're not the same. So what he's saying is, look, there needs to be an atmosphere in the church, an atmosphere of grace. Because if there's not an atmosphere of grace, there's going to be division. Peter's more than likely quoting an Old Testament proverb out of Proverbs chapter 10. And look how it contrasts. If you're not going to love, it's going to look what you're going to do. He says, hatred serves up dissension. But love covers all transgressions. Hatred, <laughs> it, it, it blows things up. If you're not going to be loving earnestly, what happens is you're going to find yourself arguing over pettiness. You're going to be dividing over picky little things. You're going to be looking for small cracks in somebody's comments and, and exaggerate those and, and gossip about those things. And then you get to play a part in Satan's role of dividing things that are sacred, like families and churches. He's saying that hatefulness leads to a critical spirit, leads to dissension, leads to division. There's a good quote contrasting these. Love hides them. Love hides the sins from its own sight, but not from God's sight. Hate is the opposite. It doesn't hide. It pries about in order to discover some sin or some semblance of a sin. Well, I'll count that in a brother and then broadcast it out. Maybe even exaggerate it. Gloat over it. I'll bet most of you have an experience where you've seen long-term friendship or even a, a wonderful marriage and all things are going swimmingly. And then some event takes place and just like that, love leaves and so does everything else. The moment love is lost, then all of a sudden there's this inventory of crimes that, that come up. And, and these are the 97 reasons that I shouldn't even be friends or married to you ever again. It's just like, why, how does that happen? Because love has left and so it, all these things are unveiled. I ran across a, a great little article from Reader's Digest. Anyone? Reader's Digest. 
Yeah, it was written on a piece of leather. And it's a (laughs) wonderful story about how this happened in a marriage. Here it is. In the middle of one of my parents' most memorable disagreements, my father just jumped up from the table and he grabbed two sheets of paper and he said, fine, let's just write down everything we don't like about each other. And so, as this little boy watched, his mother wrote something down and the father's glaring at her. And so he writes something down. She's looking at him. She writes something else down. Then he writes something else down. And this just goes back and forth. And then he stands up and says, that's that's enough. Okay. Now let's change papers. And she starts reading and then screams, I want mine back. Give me mine back. Because every time she had written something about him, he wrote, I love you. She wrote something else and he wrote, I love you. She said something a third, I love you. That argument died that very minute. And do you know why? Because love, it covers a multitude of sins. Love has a powerful kindness that that changes people's lives. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Love, particularly forgiveness, that covers the multitude of sins, it, it gives people hope. When other people see forgiveness given to someone else, they, they long for that because, because guilt and regret, it like weighs the soul down. And, and when it's, especially if it's uh, something shameful that's kept in, in, in quiet, it just keeps a person in the muck and the mud of life. And when they see someone else freed, they want that kind of freedom. Love covers a multitude of sins and gives people souls wings to fly. That's the whole theme of Les Miserables. If you know that story, see the movie, watch the musical. It is just the, you've replaced sorrow and resentment and pain with joy and freedom. Love, it's so powerful. And so he says, love earnestly, earnestly love one another. And he says this in the context, friends, in the context of persecution, in the context of when like the the well goes dry and we're all in poverty, then do that especially. Do this, don't turn on each other, turn towards each other. Peter's saying, in the world of sharks, and there's blood in the water, you be a dolphin. You swim faster, and you have a lot more fun. Dolphins ride waves. Dolphins save people. They don't eat people. And these four skills, they've been exhausted in the church in the last two years. People are writing about it in a lot of different journals. Just, just that sound judgment and sober spirit and thoughtful prayers and deep love, it puttered out. And now there's division amongst us for, frankly, petty reasons. We, we bought in, the church bought into the, the smoke and mirrors of these various things that are keep throwing at us just so that other bad people can make money. And Peter, Peter's just saying, I, I don't understand. Like, you, you can have completely different political views from a brother or sister. You could have completely different political applications than a brother and sister, but you can love them. So stop calling them names. Stop using words that are inappropriate. 
And our culture is just growing increasingly hostile to the church. Here's a, here's, a, here's a wonderful quote I read this week. This is just, the ink is still wet. This is from the president and the CEO of Christianity Today about how pervasive division is in families and in church because of our times. Couples, families, friends, and congregations once united in their commitment to Christ are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. And in fact, it's not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. As persecution increases and things get worse, the plan is to divide family and church because those are the things that God loves. And the media and the social media and the politics and the government, that's what they do, and they do it well. And how do we prepare for that? Sound judgment, sober spirit, you know, excessively loving one another, thoughtful prayer. That's how we prep. That's the church's prep. Are you prepared? Fifth attribute, be available. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality without grumbling. So the word hospitality in Greek is actually, it's a combination of two words, and it means love strangers. <laughs> so it's not like love the people that you like and love the people that are in the community, but rather it's people that are outsiders that don't agree with you that are like out there. And that's why we do a lot of the serving our city things is we want to get out there and show hospitality. And it's interesting, if you understand hospitality, quite often it is inconvenient, it is costly, it's time-consuming, and it's exhausting. And so Peter says, you know, show hospitality without grumbling. <laughs> I mean, he's got to add that because he's just looking around and going, I know it doesn't feel like hospitality when you kind of look like that. Like, put the lemon down that you're sucking on. Uh, Hey, here's an easy way, by the way, to, uh, to apply hospitality here at Grace. I would love, I mean, we'd love for you to do this. And that is so many people are coming back to church and some people are coming back to our church. Some people are coming to church for the first time. We're seeing it like we haven't seen in decades. Every regular attender is a hospitality greeter, okay? Let's just do that. Let's just like raise your hand, pledge. I'm a, you're deputized, all of you are deputized. If you know where the bathrooms are, congratulations. You're a regular attender. And so here's what I'd like for you to consider, like this, you know, showing hospitality, like just if you see people with that look in their eye, like they don't know which building to go to, just go to them and say, hey, are you new? Do you need someone to sit with? You want to go to lunch? Take them to lunch. Take them to lunch. Your, your job is to find them a good Bible teaching church. And if you can't afford lunch, you bring the receipt back next week. I'll, I'll help find you a way to get paid back for that. It's not about that. It's about getting connected to people and getting them connected to Christ through a Bible teaching church. Show hospitality without grumbling. Okay, so some of you are not qualified for that quite yet. Need a, more, a little happiness in your step, and then you can do that. I'm just kidding, okay? So without grumbling. Show hospitality. Here, he's going to go on now. He's going to explain how hospitality is shown. We'll, we'll rapid fire through this. Each one has received a gift and use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, varied grace. And so what he's talking about there, it's throughout the New Testament, that each and every Christian is given a special spiritual gift, at least one. 
And, and then we're responsible for using that gift. There's different gifts for different people, and you're supposed to be using that. The idea of a spiritual gift is twofold. One, to minister to other people, primarily in the body of Christ. And second, the spiritual part of it, it's kind of fun, where, you know, if you, if I'm a, I guess I would say I'm a teacher, spiritual gift is teaching, but I, like I'm putting out this much, but God makes it this much. You know, somebody is as gift of hospitality or service and they're putting this much into it and they're not seeing much return on investment. Like who cares? No one notices, but the spirit makes it so much more. Like people's lives are being changed just because you're being nice and showing hospitality without being grumpy. And what he's saying here is he's like, look, you have these gifts, show hospitality in those, but the whole time, watch how it's all pointing to eternity. It's all pointing to the glory of the father. Look what he says in verse 11. He's using examples here. So whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Want to be prepared? This is what it looks like. It's serving our fellow men, especially those in the church, like Christ would, through the power of the Spirit that lives in us, to the glory of the Father. All things for the glory of the Father. That way, when we stand before him, we'll say our lives were a living sacrifice. Everything, you know, we're going to try everything we do is for the glory of God. That when we show up that day and our, whether we're in poverty or we were like in prosperity, we bring to him this painting that is our life and, and it all makes it to heaven. The refining fire, you know, doesn't, doesn't burn off things that were petty and temporal. The application, I think, for this section of scripture, seven through 11, is asking the fundamental question, do you believe this? I mean, do you believe the gospel like Peter is talking about here? Or to just mostly believe it? Because if you mostly believe it, you kind of, you're living with a foot in both worlds. That's a life of regret. If you believe it like Peter, that the Lord's coming soon, or your last heartbeat is seven beats from now, either way, you live with eternity with the decisions you make in this very temporal time. And Peter's saying, come on, man, make the most of it. You know, I, I started off by telling you a story, you know, here's what crazy looks like. It's, it's me going through the Formula One with a, the end is near. And, and it, what's interesting, besides that people have been saying that for 2,000 years, it didn't happen. But also, we have an attitude sometimes that, you know, people that are so heavenly minded aren't earthly good. You know, they're always talking about heaven and, that, and what are they doing here? And that's actually just a lie. If you look at the history of Christianity from the early days until modern times, au contraire, the people that are most heavenly minded, that is their focal point in life. They start looking at this life like it's just a pretty bad night in a sleazy hotel and they live accordingly. C.S. Lewis makes a masterful work of this in this quote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next life. 
The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished slave trade, all left their mark on this earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Today, you see Christians largely ceasing to think about that other world, and so they have no effect on this world. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you lose it all. Let's be a church, individually, collectively, with people that are so heavenly-minded, we are earth changers. Are you prepared? Let's be prepared. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this lesson from Peter, that he would write us and tell us how to live life different than his, a life that uh, glorifies you in all that we do, a sharp mind that we pray intelligent prayers, we sacrificially love one another, we pay the high price for hospitality, and we realize what our spiritual gifts are, that we might bring those to this body so that in everything we do, it glorify you. Let us be a church that longingly, expectantly waits for your return, and between now and then, we don't get distracted. We see that division is the end game, and we play no part in that. We surrender our egos to your will. And Lord, let us glorify you in not just what we do, but even the things we think. Lord, would you give us a vision for ministry that's all around us, that we might help maybe bring someone to a knowledge of who you are, or help some believer grow deep in their faith away from fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.